I grew up in Malaysia, so not Greece. Um, my roots are on my father's side through um, Sri Lanka, really India, and my mother's side, Sri Lanka. But my mom was born in Singapore. My dad was born in Malaysia. Uh, they met at the University of Singapore. My father was a Hindu when they met, and my mom was a good Anglican, uh, at least in um, tradition and practice, not necessarily, hadn't fully gotten a hold of her heart, but she knew en enough to say that she wasn't going to marry a Hindu. And so when my dad and her started hanging out at the University of Singapore, she says, I'm not going to marry someone who's not a Christian. And my dad said, okay, I'll change that. And um, so, you know, we don't encourage uh, dating as a missionary strategy, but sometimes it works out. It did for my parents. And um, I, growing up in Malaysia, my sister and I, we, we remember that meals are a big part of our life. In fact, if you've ever been to Asia, you know that they are always eating Always eating. I mean, there are these roadside stalls that are open all through the night, the middle of the night. I mean, you could go to a church thing, you could go somewhere else, and there'll still be people eating at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And, and they're not just eating like you know, little finger foods. They're eating like noodles and rice and curry. And you're like, how do you not have heartburn, you know? And so I learned that every occasion is an occasion for a feast. That's what I grew up learning. That every occasion was an occasion for a feast. It was always a good time. It's always appropriate to say, let's eat. And, and so to this day, you now my parents live here now. Whenever we come over, it doesn't take but 10 seconds before our feet are in the door of their home before my mom says, what can I get you to eat? And I'll say, no, mom, I'm not. I just ate, you know, I've got salmon. Like, no, mom, I'm, I'm fine. I've got this. And I, I just made, and she's bringing out cookies for the kids and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, how, where did this come from? You know, it's like food's coming out. You know, all these hidden compartments, there's like gourmet food. And it's just every occasion is an occasion for a feast. Life, I learned early on, happens at the table. Life happens at the table. Now my wife Holly and I, she's back there with our youngest. We have four kids. And I've told you this, we have four kids, right? Four kids. Um, from ages four up to 11. So at our house, crazy happens at the table too, you know. I mean, we, we've had kids like stand up on the table, like full on decide to strip down and to their diapers and dance on the table. I mean, crazy happens at the table, right. But I, I, I'm, the more I think about it, the more I think there is probably not a significant moment in your life that didn't at some point in that event involve a meal, I mean, can you think of a birthday or an anniversary or a holiday that didn't at some point in that event lead to a meal? And I think even as Americans, I've learned, and now I am an, a naturalized citizen, glory, get to vote. I feel like I got a raw deal with that. Um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> I've lived in America for 20-some years. I finally become a citizen. Anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> We even have, though, I've learned, specific meals to mark specific days, right? You got to have turkey at Thanksgiving, you got to have ham at Christmas, you got to have cake at birthdays, and you got to grill hot dogs on the 4th of July, right? There's the, you just got to, you got to have watermelon. I hate watermelon, but we got to have watermelon on the 4th of July. It's just what, it's what you do. There are not just meals that, that, that go with um, uh, our important moments, they actually are specific meals. And I think part of the reason for this is that meals are mile markers. Meals are mile markers. They tell us where we are in the story. 
They tell us where we are in the journey. They help us sort of mark, even on a daily level. Think about this, okay. So you wake up and you realize, okay, i got to have breakfast. And then after breakfast you're thinking, how long till lunch? And then after lunch you realize, okay, dinner's coming. Meals, even in a daily way, mark time. They mark time. You mark time by your meals. They are mile markers. But meals also contain memories. I bet, I bet. If I asked you, what's the best chocolate cake you've ever had? You'd be like, oh, I know. And you could say this, oh, what, what was the best, you know, chocolate chip ice cream you ever had? Oh, I know. It's Josh and John's Creamery. There's two locations in town. Right? Or if I said, okay, when was the first time you tried calamari or Mexican food? Or, you know, my wife, she's from the Midwest. She grew up in Iowa. Literally, she had not eaten anything other than beef and stew and carrots and potatoes. Until she got to college. She was like, Mexican food, what is this? You know, rice, what is this marvel, you know? Me, like if you put rice in front of me, something takes over. And I'm like three bowls later, I'm still eating. You know, I just can't stop. You can give me a salad, a sandwich. I'll be like, oh, I'm good, thank you, you know. But there's some, you know, just meals contain memories. It brings something out of you. Jesus loved meals. In fact, one of our most iconic scenes of Jesus is a very famous meal that he had. Luke's gospel of the four gospels is in particular focuses on the meals that Jesus had. In fact, it's quite a point of controversy in Luke's gospel. Who is Jesus eating with, right? Who will Jesus eat with? And so one of our, our signature pieces of art to remember the life and ministry and death of Jesus is a scene of a meal. In fact, this scene is so iconic we still use it to make sense of other complicated family situations. It's even a great way to make sense of terrible office dynamics. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think there's something about the table, Jesus' table, that begins to ground us when we gather as the church. Daniel helped us to see how church situates us in the life of the Trinity in the world. And what I'd like to say in this talk is to say how when we gather, this practice, the practice of coming to the table actually begins to shape you. Because you know we are more than brains on a stick. That actually people remember what they do repeatedly together more than just what we say. That we, we, we're not just cognitive beings. We, we are what we repeatedly do together. And so I want to talk about three things that happen when we gather at Jesus' table. Number one, when we gather at Jesus' table, we remember. We remember something from the past comes jumping forward into the, into the present when we gather at the table. Now, of course, the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples was itself a practice among Jews, a way of remembering, a way of reenacting the Passover. In fact, when, when the Jews would sit down to do Passover, they would speak of it as if it were in the present. They would say, remember that on this night, this was the night, rather than decades ago, centuries ago, they were on this night because they were making something past present again. Remembering does that. Remembering when we come to Jesus' table, we are remembering the cross, the place of redemption, the place that changed everything for us. But at Jesus' table, we also 
anticipate. Jesus said, look, I'm, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew in the kingdom. And so every time we gather, there is a sense of saying we are looking forward to. There is coming a great feast. If you have good family memories, if the idea of a Thanksgiving family reunion brings joy to your heart, then you have been blessed with the gift of knowing just a little hint of what anticipation is like. Because you understand that ache that says right now my table is empty, but one day it's going to be full. And there is this ache in us. We, people live lives that are, with, that are, they are reminded on a daily basis how broken the world is. We are reminded on a daily basis how fragmented, how everything has come apart at the seams. And on, on Sundays or whenever we gather together and we come to the table, it's a way of saying Jesus became broken so that one day the whole world can be put back together again. We're anticipating a great feast where every tear will be wiped away, where death will be no more. And even though we know that's coming, we are in a sense drawing it forward into the present right now. We're pulling from the future and saying it's coming and so I'm, we're going we're gonna to taste of that now, here. Part of being prophetic is to see a, a different horizon, Right? The prophets in the Old Testament saw a different world and said a different word. The two Hebrew words for prophet were basically the seer and the sayer. You see differently, so you say differently. The table of Jesus is a prophetic act because it sees a different future. It doesn't see a future of a world falling apart. It doesn't see a future where progress will triumph over all. It doesn't see a future of dystopia. It sees a future where heaven and earth are made new and everything comes back together again. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And every time we take communion, we're saying, I am pulling that full into the present moment right now. So at Jesus' table, we anticipate. At Jesus' table, we encounter. This is maybe one of the things that has been forgotten. Because I, I, I grew up, even though when I um, was a child in Malaysia, we went to an Anglican church for a few years. It was uh, outside of that church that my parents encountered um, the Holy Spirit. And my dad was introduced to uh, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit through the ministries, a ministry called Full Gospel Businessmen. And my mom was introduced to it through a different a friend, and they began trying to do these prayer meetings uh, at their Anglican church. And, and sadly, at the time, that wasn't quite welcomed. I know things are different now, but it wasn't true at the time. And so we ended up leaving that church and going to a non-denominational church. We were part of a Pentecostal church. And I love uh, the gift of the Pentecostal movement to the body of Christ is the gift of believing that the Spirit is here. The gift of the charismatic movement is the gift of saying, these gifts, these charisms are for you, and they are for now. But the, the unintended, unintended tragedy of sometimes the, the movements is we have forgotten that Christians have always believed that God meets us when we gather. And that the table is not an empty ritual, but rather another place of encounter. Does that make sense? And sometimes in the early days of these renewals, at least in Malaysia where I was growing up, the two were pitted against one another. 
either do the traditional thing or come and do the Holy Spirit thing. And, and the early Christians, this would have confounded the early Christians. They would say, what are you talking about? It is here that we meet Christ. Do you know that there is a moment in the liturgy, in, in the old liturgy, the, the old, some of the oldest communion liturgies, there is a moment where right at the bread and the cup, it's called the epiclesis. And it literally means, come Holy Spirit. <laughs> come Holy Spirit. So I think the work of the enemy is to divide the body of Christ and say, well, you guys, you do that thing. We do this thing. And the redemptive work of the table where Jesus says, come on, everybody gather around my table is a way of saying, come on, Charismatics, come on, Pentecostals, come on, Anglicans, come on, everybody. Let's gather around here. This is where I will meet you. This is a place of encounter. This is where we are meant to meet him. Life happens at the table. So how does this change our understanding of Sundays? Well, for one, for one, at New Life, we, we've started to say that there's actually at least three defined moments of encounter in our worship services. We believe we encounter God in praise and worship because something happens when we sing. I, I, I can't explain it. it. It always has, right? But something happens when we sing. We also know that the proclamation of the word of God is a place of encounter because the scripture, the spirit breathes on it again when we hear it, right? And we believe the table is a place of encounter as well. I want to say just a couple things about the sermon as, we, as I close this section. A sermon is categorically different than any other kind of public speech. A sermon is categorically different than any other kind of public speech. Now, I know sometimes to translate things for people who are unchurched, we, we don't call it a sermon, we call it a talk. I, I'm less concerned about that. I'm more concerned that in, for us as leaders, we understand the difference. That even though there are overlapping qualities between a sermon and a TED Talk, a sermon categorically is different than a TED Talk. Because a sermon is proclamation of the gospel. Preaching is proclamation of the gospel. And the gospel is not at its core good advice or a good idea. The gospel at its core is good news. So if a sermon becomes just a nice good idea by a clever person up front, say, yeah, okay, fine. Could have listened to a TED Talk that was much better about that subject, actually. Or if the gospel is good advice, it's like, man, watch Oprah, you know, or don't. But you could find good advice other places. But good news, good news only comes from the gospel. And so a sermon has to be this announcement. And let me break this down, just a couple of phrases for us to chew on. It is an announcement that God in Christ has done for us what we could not. And that God by his spirit is doing in us what we cannot. Now I'm going to leave this up here for a minute because here's the deal. Sometimes we try to oversimplify things. I think simpl simplifying is a good thing, but sometimes we can oversimplify it, right? And so I've heard people say, oh, the, the law says do, but the gospel says done, right? Well, if that was true, Paul wasted a lot of ink. He wasted a lot of ink. I mean, come on, Paul, Romans needed one or two verses. That's it. Enough about morality and ethics and marriage and the law, Paul. And I think one of the reasons we've oversimplified it is because we're only thinking of the gospel as the work of Christ and not also the work of the Spirit. And this is why I love what Daniel did to set this up for us today to say, think Trinitarianly, if I may say that. 
Think in a Trinitarian way about this. Because it's not just what Christ has done for us, but what the Spirit is doing in us. And when we gather as the church, we want to call attention to both things. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And look, the Lord is doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? The Spirit is working in this. Both things. That's our role, to call attention to both things. Look what the Lord has done and look what the Lord is doing. I think if we finish a service and we haven't pointed to the finished work of Christ or the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, I don't think we've really had church. If we finish the service and we haven't pointed to the finished work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit, I don't think we've had church. And so there's something about our reflection. I'm not interested in styles and methods and techniques. I think all of you have to discern that in your own context. I have no formulas for you. We have no formulas for you. But can we, can we root this in the love of the Father, the person of Christ and his work and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, can that root us and ground us? I think one of the reasons what preaching to the table has done for us at New Life is it's made sure that we can never end a sermon without pointing to Jesus and the Spirit. It's pretty hard to know that you're going to lead people to the table and then just say, all right, well, isn't that awesome? Let's go do it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One more thing. Can we just do communion real quick, guys? Hey, everybody back in. If you know you're going to end, the arc of the service goes here, then probably the response to a sermon is not, yeah, baby, but Lord have mercy. <laughs> right? The response to a sermon is, oh, God, forgive me. Lord, help. And so there's always a moment of confession of saying, dear Lord, I can't, but you can. I'm not enough, but you are. And we come to the table one of the be most beautiful ways that the practice actually reshapes us. At New Life Downtown, we were able to do this because we were a little bit smaller, but we switched a, a little bit ago to instead of people taking, we switched to, to them receiving. And I know there's, there's logistically sometimes not possible, but the servers place the gluten-free cracker. <laughs> Got to be sensitive. Um, in people's hands. And I love the image of this practice because the story of sin is the story of taking. Adam and Eve saw the fruit was good to eat. Ah, let's take it. The story of human rebellion is a story of taking. Abraham sins by trying to take matters into his own hands. Sarah sins by taking matters. The story of sin is the story of taking. And the story of grace is the story of giving and receiving. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. No, 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 I, nobody took my, I, I gave it. And so in the same way, we don't take God's life. I want to take it. We don't take God's life. We receive it. Jesus, I'm coming today to receive all of the grace, the joy, the peace, the hope that I need. All of the life that I need because life happens at the table. Amen.